Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. What the fuck is this? <laughs> it just sounds like how all retreats begin. <laughs> I realized I was walking out here, I was like, man, I'm old, I brought a sweater and my glasses. <laughs> it's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Harris. Hello, everybody, how we doing? As an anxious person, the holy grail for me is equanimity, the skill of staying calm no matter what's happening. I'm still very much in the beginning phases of developing this skill, but I'm definitely working on it. Today, you're going to get a master class in equanimity from two great teachers. As some of you may know, we recently launched a grand experiment putting on our first ever meditation retreat. We called it Meditation Party. We did it at Omega, which is a retreat center a couple of hours north of New York City. It was basically a live version of the Meditation Party episodes we've been doing here on the show. In fact, today is yet another Meditation Party episode. The retreat, while I'm on the subject, was amazing. More than 400 people came. By the way, we're going to do two more Meditation Party retreats in May and in October, so you can buy your tickets in the show notes. In this episode, which is an experiment in and of itself, we're gonna play you some clips from some of the most interesting and useful moments from the retreat. It all starts with a discussion about equanimity that Jeff Seb and I had immediately after Jeff led us in one of the early meditations during the course of the retreat. After that, you're gonna hear a montage, a melange of sorts of the best questions we received throughout the weekend from the audience, both live and on Zoom. Jeff and Seb gave some great answers to these questions. And uh, there was also a ton of really funny stuff in here. That's what surprised me the most about the party. It was it was really funny. So I, I think you're going to find this uh, enjoyable and hopefully quite useful. Before we dive in, many of you know Seb and Jeff, but for those who don't, Seb and A. Selassie describes herself as a writer, teacher, and immigrant weirdo. She teaches meditation on the 10% Happier app and is also the author of a great book called You Belong. Jeff Warren is also a writer and meditation teacher. He and I co-wrote the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. He also co-hosts the Consciousness Explorers podcast. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. Happier. 
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. For me, you know, what came up at one point was just the realization. There's that, um, I don't know who first said it, but that idea that sometimes you get soaked by a rainstorm, but if you walk through fog or mist, you get slowly soaked and the same Mm. level of wetness from both. Mm. One is immediate. And I was just reflecting on how I used to always make meditation a problem. Yeah. You know, it's always struggling with it. And with life, really, yeah, and and it was just so it it was really peaceful in this way that um, I just felt like the mist was finally seeping in, you know, mm. that my mind wandered at times, and I brought it back, but there was this level of um, okayness with whatever was happening that was just really, really lovely. Can anyone else relate to that? That uh, a level of okayness that would creep in here and there, <laughs> here and there. <laughs> oh yeah, I totally know that. It's like the slow trickle down. A lot of it for me is about the patience. If I just remember that I'm not in a rush, I'm not trying to get to the end of the meditation, mm-hmm. which I often am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I get to the end of this thing. I'm I'm done being. I got to get to doing. You know. It's, <laughs> If I can just remember that I can, I'm not actually in a rush, mm-hmm. that patience quality itself can really shift the, the whole feeling tone of the meditation. Yeah, and I, you know, I felt it as, it's not always like that, but I've really felt it as the fruits of the practice, one, yeah, definitely. just decades of practice, but also a choice. Mm-hmm. Like I really felt it, oh, I'm, I'm choosing this, choosing to just, be okay with whatever's happening. Is that connected to your tattoo, Trust Life? <laughs> you know, we all have tattoos on... About meditation like, instructions? Meditation instructions, minus Trust Unbelievably life. nerdy. We're actually plotting to get more as a trio. Yeah, <laughs> matching tattoos, wouldn't that be cute? I'm going to get Dan's head on my back going... <laughs> with the ABC mug. <laughs> We are at the first weekend of my new cult, so <laughs> I expect to see more of those tattoos going forward. <laughs> but is it connected to... I think so, yeah. yeah, I think you're right, that there's something about um, that equanimity piece that is really just about allowing whatever is happening and then choosing the response. So it's not that I have to like what's in front of me if it's yeah. injustice or... Yeah. Harm, but there's this capacity to just be fully present with what's happening. Yeah. Well, some teachers talk about that as right attitude. Mm. Like I've heard Tibetan teachers say the most important thing in your practice is to set your attitude to beginning that, hey, basically to welcome things to the party. Yes. To have this attitude of uptight, of not uptightness, of just like, oh, 
can I have that? And, and so you set, you kind of like set that as an intention. Setting an intention at the beginning of a practice is very powerful. Mm. Yes. I used to never get the word intention, like, or I just would be just blanket annoyed by it. Uh, and then I started to understand how, uh, you know, there's a great, we like this woman, Carolyn Casey. She's an astrologer. She's a brilliant woman. She says, imagination lays the tracks for the reality train to follow. Mm. That, we harness our imagination at the beginning of a practice in a sense to set an intention for how we want to feel, for the way we want to relate to our experience. And it, that becomes something that is, is a kind of organizing principle. Uh, and it's very powerful and it works. Yeah, and I think that word welcoming is so key. It's like really everything belongs. If we're in contention with anything that arrives, that's going to create the tension. That's going to yeah. create the problems. So we, we're really open to it all. Yeah. And then you realize that you're, you are in contention with like all these things you didn't even notice you were in contention yes, with. Yes, And that's part of the practice is going, oh, wow, I'm really uptight about this one thing. And I didn't even notice that uptightness until things got a little more settled. Mm. Yeah. There's a meditation teacher I've never actually met, but I've been influenced by him quite a bit. His name is Sayada Utejaniya, mm, Burmese, yeah. Burmese guy. And yeah. he is the teacher for somebody who I have been influenced by directly, who we everybody we're all friends with this guy's name is alexis santos and some of you probably familiar with him and uh one of the phrases that um tejania uses in his teaching and this has been picked up by many other teachers too so you may have heard of this is what's the attitude in the mind right now sometimes referred to as like an attitude check and uh i love dropping that into my into my mind in in my meditation and in my life because it's a little bit like I, there, there were these famous i've used this analogy before and i love it there was the there were these famous reports that a former colleague of mine on abc news named chris cuomo did in the in the aughts where he went into hotel rooms with a black light and shined it onto all the sheets and it was <laughs> disgusting <laughs> that's what happens when you ask what's the attitude in the mind <laughs> You're not going to like what you see, That's but, but if, vivid you, metaphor. if you don't, if you don't ask, you won't see it. And when you don't see it, it's owning you. And, um, exactly. so I do that in my practice a lot, but what I found great about the meditation we just did is that your emphasis on equanimity from the jump as an intention, as the tracks that reality, the reality train can follow really turn the volume up on the attitude check from the start for me, mm, mm. that was really helpful. And it was just an attitude of, it's all good. Mm. And there was a lot of sleepiness coming up for me because I had trouble sleeping last night for no good reason. Um, and yeah, it's all right if I fall asleep here and wake up with a very loud snore and it's humiliating in front of <laughs> all of you. All right, it's all good, you know? Um, and there's something about just being cool with it that is magic. Here's a bit of Buddhist nerdiness. Upeka, which is translated as equanimity, and Nibbana, enlightenment, are used interchangeably oh, throughout the Pali Canon. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. I, I think it's all about equanimity. You know, I'm obsessed with it, but I, I, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> I, my newsletter is called The Equanimist Pages, or it used to be, or something, like a joke on The Economist, The Equanimist. <laughs> I even have The Economist font that... 
Uh, I, I didn't know what Aquanimus. it was. It yeah. sounds like a marsupial from it's, <laughs> down under. It's, the Aquanimus lives in Tasmania. Totally. It's hopelessly nerdy. I'm going to change the title. Um, but the, um, you know, I think about the fruits of what the practice has given me. Um, it, most of it is space. Most of it is uh, the capacity to come to a place of just being available to what's here in a very natural, easy way, not trying to fight with what's here. Someone's intense in front of me, not, you know, or not, or not, but just, okay, just let the intensity of this person go right, flow right through me, be here, you know? And it doesn't mean I don't have a boundary in some way, but there's a sense of just being able to not, not need to run away from my experience, to be able to stay right here. Sometimes I think of it as being in the middle. Uh, and, and, it, and it feels like something. It feels like a, a kind of inner smoothness. It's like an inner looseness of just not being contracted. And I think the more you practice, I think that's w- one of the primary flavors of what comes into experience. And, and as, it, as you soften in that way, your boundaries, you know, the, the rigid ways you imagine your ego to be and the way the organizing principles start to get softer in that way too. And that to me is the direction that, practice leads, one way to think about it anyway. And so we are going to do some some Q&A and some sharing. That's a word that blanket annoys me. Um, Sharing? Yeah. (laughs) I don't like to. You're over here like being a mystic and a Buddhist nerd bowing after every bell and like, but you don't like the word sharing? (laughs) I just picture Dan at kindergarten like, no. Okay. I mean, all of that is true, but... <laughs> You're like a walking paradox. <laughs> I don't, I'm not against the concept of actually sharing shit you have with other people. It's the, thank you for sharing after every comment <laughs> that drives me fucking batshit. That's what I don't like. Oh, well, thank you for sharing, Dan. <laughs> thank you for sharing. <laughs> More questions answered right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home, and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff, 
at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first... 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. The 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. My my question was kind of a a general Buddhist philosophy question for you guys around attachment and non-attachment. And I've realized that a lot of my life has been driven by like attachment to future things. So it's like I'm driven to get into dental school, to get out of dental school, to start a podcast, to start a, a practice. And I've hit this phase where like my brain knows that that next attachment isn't going to like serve me. It isn't going to bring me happiness. And so for a while I've been waiting for like my next obsession, my next thing to be excited about. And the recent epiphany I've had is like maybe non-attachment is something I should explore, (laughs) but it's also... To get obsessed about. Right. Uh, It's also kind of terrifying. Like, it sounds really boring and hard (laughs) to kind of, like, function. Um, And so I was just wondering from, you know, someone who's, you know, people who are driven or very obsessive, um, how to to go about non-attachment and find (laughs) fulfillment rather than looking forward towards the next thing. I love that you're you're with your buddies at a barbecue and everybody's talking about their what they're into in lawn care, the new car they got, and you're like the guy who's like really into non-attachment, and <laughs> everybody kind of backs away. <laughs> I think this is for you. <laughs> you heard the judginess in the voice, didn't you? You heard that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's for me in that, well, I've been thinking about my next tattoo might be don't cling because it's such a, it's such a problem for me. I have had, um, I'm going to try to be vague for legal reasons. Um, (laughs) There's been some level of business stress in my life for the last couple of years, and I can get very 
knotted up around it. And I was on a jag of a couple of days of really worrying about it. And um, I was flying back from Miami where I was giving a talk and I arrived back at our house and um, I was in a really bad mood. And as fortune or karma would have it, uh, a guy named Joseph Goldstein was staying at our house that night. Uh, who is, if you've never heard of him, a great meditation teacher. And I walk into the house and I open the door. And even before I can lay eyes on Joseph and my son, who are watching football together, um, they start making fun of me. Uh, oh, guess who's home? That kind of thing. <laughs> and... <laughs> There is a kind of contact high to being around somebody who spent 60 years cultivating non-attachment. And we did talk about some of the things that are on my mind, and the advice was really good. And there was also something about somebody who really doesn't cling that much that is a great reminder. And I'm still kind of riding that, of being able to recognize that I'll be fine no matter what. Can I just say something? Yeah. I wasn't, I didn't mean that in a judgy way. I meant it really in, um, as a point of admiration mm. because you've done something really radical in leaving a very successful, very high profile career to dedicate your life to the betterment of the world. <laughs> Thank you. And to tattoo that onto your arm. <laughs> well, that's what I did tattoo yes. it on. Yeah. yeah. Very the light, light of all font beings. that hardly hurt, probably. <laughs> Was there oh, yeah, judginess yeah. in that? No. Or just... <laughs> Our tattoo is going to be thick when we get it. But really, you know, the, the question is really around how do we stay true to our, our true desires, our 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 good desires, our beneficial desires. And I feel like that's what you've been exploring for yeah. these years. Yes. And it's hard. It is hard. Yes. And I think if, if you commit yourself to non-attachment or not clinging, it's not only going to be weird and awkward at backyard barbecues. It's, you're just going to have to get used to screwing it up all the time and noticing the evidence of your unenlightenment uh, on the regular. Um, I stole that phrase from my friend Sam Harris. And it, it might be that there's an opportunity to do a slight bit of rebranding here, um, if you want to call it that. Uh, Non-attachment is one way to talk about it, but another way to talk about it is to get really curious about being, about what is this thing that we're in. And that is the most profound inquiry you can begin in your life. And there can be a real excitement that opens up around that, a fervor that is good. There's an energy, an interest, a curiosity. There is more to learn here than we realize. You are not who you think you are in some ways. There's a much bigger uh, inheritance here. And so for me, and I have an intense tendency to fixation and you know, as part of my, my makeup, um, and I did, be, uh, when I first got interested in practice, I was very fixated. Um, and part of that was good in the sense that there was a lot of energy for it, but part of that didn't serve me. 
a lot of it didn't because I was so obsessed that I was constantly, my energy was constantly kind of going out of control and I wasn't doing the basic ground of just learning how to settle in my body and be okay with a more delicate and gentle inquiry into what it is to kind of be here. So, and that's a feeling thing. So you can explore just being here in a, you can notice when that is feels fixated and you can back off from that fixation energy a bit. It's a quality and experience and you can let it, and every time you breathe out and come back in that more leisurely way, that inquiry is still available and actually it gets more enjoyable and it opens up. So I, I mean, that's a practice, uh, but it's a very worthy practice. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys. Oh, thank you. Who else has a question? Hi, I'm Kelly. And I just want to first gush and say thank you so much, Dan. Your book brought me to this practice. It's changed my life cataclysmically, truly. It really has. Um, so I know that meditation is not about feeling great. You're not supposed to sit down and, oh, my life has changed. Now I'm in a great mood and now I'm on my way. The benefit is that for me at least, it really did change my life in a way where it stopped so much of my negative talk and so much of my, you know, storytelling to myself of what was going on and what my life was really turning into and brought me to true reality. And for the longest time, it, of course, made me feel good and changed so much about what I was doing. And now that I've been doing it for longer, I find that occasionally I'll get into a rut where... I just feel like my practice isn't reaching me. And then it happened almost consistently for a couple of weeks where I was feeling a bit heartbroken. I'm like, did I lose this? Did I lose the magic? And I just wanted to ask the experts, does that ever happen to you? And what's your process to sort of revitalizing your experience? Uh, yes, it happens to me all the time. Uh, so that's the first time it's happened to you? Yeah. When I, did you start practicing? I started practicing two years ago, and then for the last year, it's been a daily practice. Right, and in the past, and it's been, what was about a few months ago that that started? That, that... No, over the last two months, and I was actually panicking, thinking... Oh no, I'm going to the retreat and I, I, don't, I don't do this anymore. I can't really do this. So yeah, so it was actually like within the last couple of months. Uh, have you noticed that happened in other contexts of your life or areas of life where maybe you're doing a, you're in a job, it's really great at first and then there's after a certain amount of time. No, it low, didn't really, it didn't like really correlate with anything. It was okay. just, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think maybe my sleep schedule is off. I don't know, but well, no, nothing specific. Let me yet. just naturalize it for you. Anyone in this room feel can relate to that report? Yeah. So almost every single person in this room. So um, I think of it as your practice has seasons, you know, and uh, there's an initial spring season of kind of novelty. I mean, it's challenging at the very beginning, of course, to, to get concentrated, but there can be this kind of revelatory quality like oh my gosh you didn't realize what you were stuck in and you get the principles it's exciting it's novel you have energy to do it you're interested in it and it's and there can be this real sense of like here I am and then you know following spring there's a summer there's a great there's kind of like you're uh you're 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 getting deeper into the investigation you're exploring you're continuing to open but summer changes to yeah. fall and the leaves come off the trees and it starts to get cold and 
And, and I mean, in Buddhist insight practice, there's kind of a very clear description of this trajectory of like starting out, having, having more peak experience, and then moving into a challenging period where the novelty is not there anymore, it's harder to summon the energy. Also through practice itself, you're continuing to explore who you are. And so it's like you're, the exploration gets a little deeper and the next layer gets revealed. And that can be when often when more challenging things are coming up. And part of a, a mature practice is learning how to feel forsaken in your practice, how to feel like it's not working anymore, it's broken. And then that's a whole thing that quite kind of maturity growing process. I mean, I'll just speak personally for me that that really happened. And, I felt heartbroken about it and I had a long period. Uh, I mean, it happens kind of in nested ways, like it could happen within a single sit <laughs> and it happens over a retreat, whatever, but I had a period of like a bunch of years where it was just so awesome, the practice. It was so obviously working. I thought I got it all and then it was like <laughs> gone and I was a terrible meditator and it was really desolating, but you keep sitting. You know, and then you learn, can I be okay even with this? What if it didn't need to be anyway? Wait a second, maybe that's what the practice is really about. And you keep sitting. So, I mean, I, uh, that's my take on it. I'd be curious for how you two think about that. And uh, if you want to do any more um, awesome Socratic method, 7A. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I really relate. And um, my practice has changed over all these decades many, many times you know, different traditions, different styles, different techniques, periods where I didn't practice, periods where I practiced really intensely and did lots of retreats and, um, you know, months of silent retreat. So it, it goes up and down. There was a period during the pandemic where I, um, I stopped having a formal practice. So I stopped sitting at all you know, in terms of like having a cushion and a spot where I, I would practice all the time, but it was spontaneous. I didn't practice every morning at the same time in the same spot. And then that led to a period where I didn't practice formally at all for about a year. And it, to I me- I love that you said that because I feel guilty about that because being a parent, it's like I find it very hard to find time for formal, formal practice. I mean, that is your practice. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think that's a problem at all. I think that's part of just, it, for many of us. And there are some people, aliens, who are <laughs> so just methodical and, and disciplined and have had the same exact practice for decades, you know, every, the same time every day. That is not me. And I think finding your, your way into practice, and that's what I meant when I said I, I don't want to tell people how to practice and what to do, is that every single one of us here is going to have a unique practice. And anything that tells us we should practice in one way or another is, is not going to be true for all of us. And there are going to be some people who are attracted to Zen practice. It's very formal and very uniform. But those people are attracted to that practice. That doesn't mean we have to be attracted to that practice. So finding your practice is the practice. And that's going to change because we all change. Thank you. Thank you. More questions answered right after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match 
with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Often when I'm meditating... Oh, could you please say your names? Oh, my name is Strand, like the bookstore in New York. So (laughs) um, when I'm meditating, sometimes I'll think about an email... I failed to send an hour earlier that was kind of important or something I forgot to tell my father who's staying with our children back in Brooklyn. And it'll have some sense of urgency in my mind and I know I'm not supposed to cling to these things and I'm supposed to be present in my body and feeling my breath, but it's like the email, the email I forgot to send. And I, and I wonder if it would be beneficial to like meditate with a pad of paper nearby where you quickly write it down <laughs> and then you can kind of leave that and let that fly off. Or like... Like, I don't want to lose this thought, but maybe it's not so important. It'll come back to me later if it really is important. So I'm curious how you deal with that. Uh, that's one question. The other question is, I, I feel like um, part of the point of meditation is to have a non-identification with a self and a selflessness and to kind of dissolve into the universe. And yet meditation itself is so grounded in like my very essence and my very being in my body, in my breath, the way I'm feeling right now. So how do you balance kind of the obliteration of self with a practice that's incredibly self-centered in a way? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a really easy. Strand, keep the yes, mic. Yes, thanks, Strand. Keep the mic, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, um, like, how has... Is that an issue, the first question, is that an issue that's come up for you at home, too, or...? Uh, y- yes. Well, oh, uh, I'm looking at my wife here. Yeah, it's, a, it's our it's our twelfth uh, wedding anniversary. We actually talked about this today as we were going on a walk in the woods, and it was beautiful, and the foliage rhined back, the crunch of the leaves, and I was trying to think, you know, listen to the sound of the leaves, listen, like feel the the 
wind-like silk passing by my hands. And instead I'm thinking about like work emails that I mm -hmm. didn't respond to. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I just can't balance And how do you sometimes. usually deal with it then? I, I usually try to hang on to the thought of the work email and then go and send it as soon as I'm <laughs> <laughs> How's that working out for you? I, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's challenging. I mean, I'm a talent agent and it's a high-paced, you know, fast business. I'm expected to like respond to people quickly. Everything's urgent. Everything had to be done yesterday. And it's very difficult not to give a sense of outsized importance to like what's going on and just letting it drop just doesn't seem like an option often. Like there are people depending on me. I have to like, you know, somebody's going to knock it in their car at the right time if I don't, you know, make this happen soon. And, and none of it really is important. Like it's like, you know, take a step back. It's all. And how can I, I'm going to keep asking you questions. So just yeah, hold on to the mic. Well, so, and please jump in. You guys. This guy's fucked. I mean, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. I'm glad you're getting the, the beam of attention right but now. But how, how long, how long are, how long are your meditations generally at home? I usually 10 to 15 minutes and I usually do it on the subway. And I actually wonder if this is cheating because it is sort of multitasking, but I, my office is in the Flatiron, and I live in South Brooklyn. And so when I'm on the R train, I like do my meditations during the commute. And actually, like I feel like I'm killing two birds with one stone because I'm getting the meditation in. And it's very much about like feeling the vibrations in the bottom of my feet. And my meditation also always roves. I can never just stick with a breath. I I always think of the Joseph Goldstein story where he's on a bus in India, and it like smells bad and there are chickens and like children crying and like how at first he tries to stick with his breath and then he stops resisting, he, he surrenders and he's, he lets everything sort of become the meditation and it's that, and, and I like that on the train, I sort of do the same thing. I let, you know, one minute it's like holding onto the sound, then I'm going back to the breath and I'm flitting over to the like feelings of the rumbling in my body. Um, but I, I'm very like, onto the next thing, onto the next thing, can't really stick with one thing. Mm -hmm. Do you ever try and gather your awareness in one place? Yes, I, the, that, definitely the aspiration. <laughs> <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any No, no, no you, this is the best show I've watched. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, like, so, I don't like giving people meditation instructions, directions. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't, I don't like to tell people what they should do. Wait a minute. <laughs> you tell us what to do. Yeah, that's different. But <laughs> because it, it sounds to me like you understand what's going on with you, and you probably know what you need. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think it's a, it's definitely. I'm, I'm self-aware. And I try to, you know, stay in the nostrils, kind of, when mm -hmm. I'm when I'm meditating. But um, yeah, and I and I think I don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to reach my own conclusion here about about the <laughs> you know about the email that needs to be sent that hasn't been sent. Like when, because it, it's almost like you do some of your best thinking when you're in the mm -hmm. shower or mowing the lawn or going for a jog. It's like that's sometimes when you have an epiphany. And I find. It may not be an epiphany, but something from the to-do list does filter in when I'm meditating, and then... Yeah, I think it filters in for most of us, um, but if it's only 10 minutes out of your day, 
I think you could commit to it. Fair. I yeah. also, I, I, uh, I don't mind telling you what to do. She just told him what to do. I know, but I'm going to add to the telling what to do. But he, he knew that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just going to point out that urgency is a really good thing to work with. Yes. Urge, we all think everything is urgent all the time. It drives us. It drives us moment to moment, the sense that, you know, I have to get to the next thing, I have to get to the next thing. So it is really worth looking at where that urgency is. Like, what does that feel like? Going right into, why does this feel like it must be addressed? Where do I feel that urgency? And what would happen if I stayed with it over that hump because it is a hump. It might be a plateau, <laughs> but it could be. But what would happen if I just stayed with that with curiosity? What does it feel like to come to the other side of my urgency and find out there is no urgency? That's freedom. And you can find that in a 30-second block. You, know, you can notice the urgency of wanting to shift to another. Of course, you can have a more panoramic practice. You can choose anything. But always needing to update to the next thing is part of the issue of what keeps us, you know, in that state of discontent. So mm. notice that urgency. You know, those, those are they're great meditation objects, whether you're on a train or you're at home or wherever you are. I would also say sometimes, write it down. <laughs> I do that sometimes. But I know it'll, it'll come back. She's right, absolutely, about committing. But if it's something that's completely obsessing you and you're sitting down for a half hour sit, you know, once in a while, write it down, you know, sure. Uh, I think that's the difference too, and, and why I asked how long they are because there's, yeah. a, there's a three times difference between a ten minute yeah. sit and a half hour sit. Yeah. <laughs> ten and minutes so, you can commit. To. You know, if you're if you're only trying to go for ten minutes, go for the ten minutes. Right. Thank you. On the rushing thing, you maybe say a little bit more about what you um, your intention that you set backstage when we were talking about getting on stage mm. together. Oh yeah. Um, well, I know rushing. <laughs> you know, I have uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is like my companion for my whole life. So the hyperactivity is big, the impulsive, the driving movement, restlessness. And so I can get into, and then with the bipolar piece, you know, you get this propulsive speech that can happen and a lot of intensity pouring through this nervous system. So. Um, I find it really helps. We kind of connect ahead of time. How do I want to show up my body for this teaching? How do I want to show up in this body for this meeting? And for me, it was spacious, unhurried, unhurried. And just repeating that to myself, like, and then connecting that moment to the, what that might be like in my body, it, I can carry that with me. And I could do that in my days. Sometimes I do that with them with my kids and, um, you know, it's a game changer. It's hard to do. You forget and then you remember, but but once you get the feeling of it, it's like your body remembers it, you know. We'll move on to somebody else, but I do want to say one more thing about Strand's comments or questions earlier. He probably regrets making them, but the <laughs> this idea about the injunction to obliterate the self, and maybe we can okay. get into that in a big way throughout the weekend, but there's nothing to obliterate. It's like trying to kill Santa Claus. You know, there's, there's nothing there. 
trying to kill Santa Claus with a reindeer horn. Yeah. So, so I mean, yes, on some level there is you, if you look in the mirror, Strand, you will see Strand. So on some level uh, of this consensual reality that we all share day to day, yeah, of course you exist. But if we took a high-powered microscope to your arm, all we would see is mostly empty space and spinning subatomic particles. And so both things are, Seven Day Loves a Paradox, both things are true at the same time. And, but we, we can get into this over time. But having hostility towards yourself in that way is probably not the best attitude to bring into meditation. That's really the only point I wanted to make. I love that you are like now a Buddhist nerd animistic. <laughs> this is not the Dan I met, I don't know how many years ago. But, you know, I think that a lot of us hear about these mystical experiences and states. The only way to get to them is through the body and the self. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Probably more confused now than you were. No. Um, just watch out for obliteration. That's my only thing. We can say more about selflessness as the weekend goes. Who else has a question? So, say your name, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Name is Ron. So I want to present a case study of position <laughs> and see if you can help me. I've been dealing with uh, anger, frustration about a work-related thing. It's been kind of sitting with me. I'm working through it in terms of how to deal with it professionally. But it is, so here, calm, getting in the moment, frustration. I, you know, like name it, feel it, anger. I think I can get, I think I can um, sit with it, maybe not perfectly, I'm probably trying to push it away. But I also think that there's the opportunity, I guess, through insight to say, okay, is there something that's, I don't know, some trauma I had when I was three years old driving that? How do I, how do I get into that? Other than not forcing it, sit back, let it happen. Do you have any suggestions or, how, or examples of how any of you have worked through those kinds of things? So you're, you're hoping to achieve a psychological insight is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's constantly it's just rumination constantly. Yeah. I mean, this has been going on for weeks, months. Yeah. Well, I I, I sympathize. Don't don't sit down. <laughs> I definitely sympathize with that. Like you know, rumination and getting pissed about. It. But let me specifically address the hoping for a psychological insight. Um, in classical Buddhism there's like a list of hindrances, things that get in the way of your meditation or that, are, that, that, that can cause a lot of struggle in meditation. And the first one is desire. And you might think it's like only chocolate, but hoping for an insight is, or hoping to be more awake in this last meditation, that's still desire. And the whole thing is to be okay with whatever's happening right now. So that's one thing, that, uh, and I'll let the actual teachers correct me after I say a bunch of things here. But the second one is, like, there's a difference between psychotherapy and meditation. And so I think in therapy, it's really useful to talk these things through. But in meditation, you know, there is an investigative element of how is this anger showing up in my body. It's a little different from, oh, I wonder what happened to me when I was a toddler that's producing this pattern of rage. That, that I think, is like extra or a different process, a different modality. And then maybe I could say, well, 
I have a few thoughts on like little like slogans that might be helpful when you're dealing with rage. Um, but before I get to that, I just want to check you guys check with you guys. Does, does that what I just my okay? Yeah, yeah. I, I had a couple of things I might add yeah, to go, it. Go, please. Um, uh, uh, I have a lot of anger uh, as well from things that happened to me a long time ago, and um, I noticed that. Uh, I had a thing around I wasn't allowed to be angry because being angry is not cool. And being angry is not what a meditation would be like. Being angry actually gets me in a bad position because uh, of, you know. So I, I have kept my anger down. And the more I've kept my anger down, the more reactive I've become in life. So to uh, give myself to let myself be angry has been very, very good. Uh, not necessary to act it out, to let myself be. So there's a way you work with anger. You know, you, you, there's a way to work with all the emotions, anger. Each one has a, there's a similar universal principles, but then there's slight flavors of difference. Anger, the near, there's a, every emotion in, uh, like in certain Buddhist ways of framing has like this like, wonderful counterpart and the counterpart to anger is like clarity fierceness like there's a strength to it so sometimes i just like i breathe and i let myself feel the anger and i feel what it the the satisfaction of the power of that moving through me um without it needing to land anywhere just giving myself permission to be angry i'm just a human being I, i should be angry based on some things that happened to me i have every right to be and so i let it sing inside me um, and I don't feel guilty. I'm trying to learn to not feel shame or guilt about that. I don't, and, and the more I do that, the less likely it's gonna come out in other contexts and, and that are not um, cool at all. Um, and that's just one meditative way. There are other meditative traditions that are like externalize it. Go in, through art, through go into the woods and scream with glorious rage. You're like, go to a punching bag. You know, there's lots of ways to cathartically express anger, express emotions. It doesn't have to be this piece here. And then therapy is one of those. There's a great therapist named Terry Real, who I really like. And he talks a lot about anger. And he talks about it sometimes in the context of male, what he calls covert male depression, that, that there's a kind of tendency not to generalize, to be gendered, you know, make any generalizations about gender, but there's a tendency in humans, and particularly some male-identified humans seem to be more on this spectrum where they, they might feel helpless in life, and then, but they do not like to feel helpless. So they overcompensate in the under, other direction to get mad, you know, because it feels better to be angry than to feel helpless and vulnerable. And so there's a kind of one down, one up thing that happens. And so that is something you can unearth in psychotherapy and you can unearth it in meditation. It does happen. You can have an insight of like, oh gosh, this anger is in response to actually, I was feeling really helpless in this situation. And you can have that insight in, in sitting. So there is a lot to learn there, but to Dan's point, it's hard to go in like I'm going to find the insight now and look for it. It's more like having this curiosity about the experience, being willing to let yourself have it, to, to be there. It, that in and of itself creates this sort of welcoming envelope in which certain insights are more likely to appear at their own time. Um, is that all right? As a, as a, How's that landing uh, with you, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, I relate. I relate. Does that have anything about that? I will say, uh, 
having had work things that have pissed me off for a long time in various jobs that I've had, um, Joseph Goldstein, who I, I talk about a lot because I call him when I'm mad, um, uh, <laughs> will say, um, he, you know, he teaches in these little slogans, little mantras, little phrases that you can drop into your mind when you need them. And I find that the more I've pondered them, they actually will arise spontaneously. And so a little one-two punch he has recommended that I found very helpful when, uh, if I'm going down the rabbit hole, the rage rabbit hole, is uh, number one is dead end. I've thought about this enough. No more thinking is going to help. Dead end. Change the channel. The second is, and this, <laughs> when you hear it, you will understand why I had a little bit of a reaction to it because it's off brand, let's say. Um, love no matter what. Now, this does not mean invite the person who's pissing you off over for dinner or condone their behavior, but just to recognize that if you came out of that womb and endured all the same circumstances, you would probably see things exactly the way they're seeing things and maybe do exactly the same thing. And so we're all, if you take, and I don't mean this in a theological sense, but if you take the God perspective, we're all just acting out our shit. And so love in this sense is not approval, it's more just like understanding. I find that to be a good circuit breaker on my rage tendencies. So try it. Thank you to Seb and Jeff and to all the brave souls who asked questions and showed up for this experiment of the meditation party retreat. We're going to do two more meditation party retreats in May and in October. So you can buy tickets in the show notes. And as you may know, we've already recorded a bunch of other meditation party episodes and dropped them down the feed. We'll put links to those prior episodes in the show notes as well. Oh, and by the way, coming up on Friday, we're gonna drop a special bonus guided meditation that I personally led during the retreat. So you'll get to hear an amateur meditation guider and some of the questions we got afterwards. Do it at your own risk. Buyer beware. 10% Happier is produced by Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Shout out to Marissa, who did a ton of work to make this episode and the one coming up at work. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production. And Kimmy Regular is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing. And Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts. Nick Thorburn of Islands wrote our theme. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.